I feel my need for God's help, and so would you join me as I pray? Lord, we need to meet with you today, Lord. We need to hear your voice. We need... Some of us need comfort. Some of us need to be challenged. Some of us need reminders. Some of us need to be awoken. Some of us need to be saved. And so, Lord, I pray that through the power of your word and the strength of your spirit that you would be amongst us this morning in power. I pray that you would work today because we we need much more than information. We need your spirit to work on us each. I could not possibly know every person in the room and all the situations they come from, but you do. And I pray that you would connect with and reach every person here in the exact way they need. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Have you ever heard of people using the expression, the crowded hour, or my crowded hour? That's from a poem in the 18th century called The Call. In that poem, two lines say, one crowded hour of glorious life is worth an age without a name. In other words, there are times in which life pushes us into a situation that we find we have to act. And it's a crowded hour, as the poet says. From that point on, you'll find people in writing different, different literature, they'll reference the crowded hour. But the f- most famous per- person to use that phrase was Teddy Roosevelt, our former president from the early part of the 20th century. He used that phrase in conjunction with the charge up Kettle Hill. It wasn't San Juan Hill, it was Kettle Hill. Um, But he said when he received the charge, when he received the order to go up the hill, he said, the instant I received the order, I sprang on my horse and my crowded hour began. He considered this charge, which ultimately he took the hill. He also charged into the White House on the back of the fame that he achieved in this charge as his crowded hour. This morning, we're going to join Jesus again in the beginning of his crowded hour. We're going to read of another crowded hour. Now, this crowded hour is not going to seem glorious like the charge up Kettle Hill. This crowded hour that we're going to witness is not going to seem impressive. It's not going to seem cool. It's going to seem like an undiluted failure, but it's not. It's glorious. It's glorious not because of how Jesus is going to be treated. It's glorious not because he was lied about or spat upon or mocked or hit. It's glorious because from this courtroom, we see Jesus in his crowded hour beginning to purchase grace. From this courtroom, the high cost of grace echoes forth. You know what grace is? As Christians, if you are a Christian, we can throw that word around a lot. But I wonder how often we think what it really means and how much it costs. How lavishly expensive and costly and scandalous, really, grace is. Grace 
is God's goodness, God's favor, God's love given to undeserving people like you and like me. You see, the glorious thing about grace is that for we who follow Jesus, it is wondrously, astoundingly, scandalously free. At no cost to us. Grace says someone has paid for your sins so that you might receive God's love. We receive grace and affection from God, not as wages paid, but as a gift to cherish. Grace is free. But today, we're going to visit Jesus' crowded hour and remind ourselves how very costly that grace is. Today, as we join Mark again, we're going to follow Jesus. Remember, we're walking alongside Jesus so that we who are Christians, we see him and get to know him better and remember he's worth following. And those that aren't Christians, we come alongside him and say, wow, he is unique. I want to follow him. Here's his crowded hour. We're going to begin in Mark chapter 14. It's in three sections. We'll go section by section. First, we're going to begin in Mark chapter 14, verses 53 through 61. This is Jesus before the Jewish authorities. Jesus before the Jewish authorities. You can follow along as I read. And they led Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now, the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, Their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he, that's Jesus, remained silent and made no answer. You can't tell by the way Mark describes it But this crowded hour we find Jesus in is outrageously illegal. The Jewish authorities presiding over this trial are doing so, and they break the law. They are officiating a grossly immoral trial. Now remember, these Jewish authorities are the ones who are so concerned about Jesus breaking the law. And here they are breaking the law. They are violating their own legal code as they put this man on trial. How? First of all, all night trials are illegal in this time frame. So here's Jesus at one or two in the morning put on trial. It's secret. It's behind closed doors. People can't come and watch. That's illegal. Secondly, any questions of capital crimes against the state needed two full days to process. They're not trying to process anything. They're trumping up charges against him so that they can, commit, they can pronounce him guilty and move on to crucifixion. They're not waiting for, for days. They're, work, they're working with hours. 
And thirdly, no capital crime could be heard on Sabbath Eve, and that's exactly where we find ourselves here. They should have postponed these proceedings until Monday. And even more than that, they're looking for an excuse to put him to death. Look at verse 55. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. Here in Israel, it's innocent until proven guilty. It's supposed to be, but that's not what's happening to Jesus. So the Jewish authorities, what they did is they called witnesses. They called many witnesses to speak against Jesus. And all these false witnesses, they got together and they couldn't agree. Their testimony conflicted. Now, if you're going to go to the trouble to hold a kangaroo court, you might as well make the testimony not conflict. But they couldn't even do that. But the the charge that kind of bubbles to the surface is in verse 58. The false Witnesses say, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is, not, that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Now, even that is disingenuous. Jesus said, did not say he would destroy the temple. He said that the temple would be destroyed, and it was about 40 years later. And when he referenced another, another one taking his place, he was talking about his death and resurrection. But these witnesses made it sound like Jesus was, was planning some kind of secret terrorist treachery. Dishonest people are adept at twisting the truth to make it sound dreadful, and that's exactly what's happening here. He, but he was also, Jesus was, was, was wise enough to let this circus just sort of play out in front of him. Three rings going on in front of him, and he doesn't answer. That's exactly like Isaiah prophesied 800 years before in Isaiah 53 when the prophet said, he, that's Jesus, was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, he opened not his mouth. He's silent. All attempts to discredit Jesus, they're failing spectacularly. To me, it's beyond remarkable that Jesus didn't respond to these bundle of false accusations. Have you ever had somebody lie about you to other people? Have you ever had someone say, you did this when you didn't? And if you're in the room, it's not, is it normal for, for us to just go, huh, well, I'll let, other, I'll, let, I'll let people think what they want to think about me. I'm just going to walk away. No, we don't do that. Jesus could have done the same thing. He could have shouted these people down. He could have, could have ripped them apart with his piercing logic. Instead, he was silent. He was silent. He was silent, suffering all of this injustice as part of the price of grace. This is one element in the purchase price of grace. He bore the shame. He bore the extreme injustice. He heard people lying about him so that we might experience the gift of grace. But this trial, trial number one, is going nowhere fast. And the chief priest, his name is Caiaphas, he knows this. He knows it's getting nowhere. Jesus isn't responding to these people. And they have to have Jesus say something so that they can prove that he is a threat. But Jesus is proving his mettle during this crowded hour. And so now Caiaphas appoints himself as cross-examiner. And he's about to ask Jesus the only question that really matters. He pushes aside all this temple nonsense. And he says, who are you? And thus begins the second phase of the trial, trial number two. 
the Jewish authorities before Jesus. Mark chapter 14, second half of verse 61 to 65. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the blessed? And Jesus says, said, I am. And you will see me. You will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You've heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. You see the second question or the second part of the trial? Who are you? Are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? Are you the promised one? The son of the blessed. Jews then, as in now, would never invoke the name of God, so they used the word blessed as a sort of uh, euphemism for, the, for, for God. And so we see that Jesus answers in the affirmative, and the whole courtroom scene devolves very fast. We go from questioning people, we go from calling people on the stand, we go from the chief priest calling out to all of a sudden people condemning him, spitting on him, hitting him, mocking him. Why? It's because of what he said. It's because of what he said. Look at what he said. Jesus could have answered, yeah, I'm the Messiah, and just stopped. But he didn't. He said much more. And in fact, he attributes two different Old Testament prophecies, two different Old Testament expectations to himself. Verse 62, and Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the cloud of heaven, clouds of heaven. Do you see what he's saying? He doesn't just say, yeah, I'm the promised one. He says, yes, I am the Christ, the Son of God, and you will see me one day coming with the clouds. You think you are putting me on trial. One day I will come and put you on trial. He says, I'm the one who's in charge. And he took two, old, two of the most famous Old Testament passages predict, predicting Messiah, and he applied them directly to himself. The first, he says, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power. That comes from Psalm 110, verse 1. We read, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool." To sit at the right hand of the Lord is not just to be the most important person in the universe, it's also to, to have and exhibit the, prerog- have the prerogatives of God. In fact, it is equality with God. So when Jesus says, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, he's saying, you're going to see me equal with God the Father. Not only that, but God the Father is going to make everybody who opposes me He's going to make them my footstool. I'm going to stomp on them. You, Jewish authorities, are on trial or will be on trial. And I will be the judge. It wasn't just that he prophesied that that he would come in the clouds of heaven or that he would be at the right hand of God. He also says he's coming with the clouds of heaven. That comes directly from the prophet Daniel. Daniel chapter 7. Beginning in verse 9, Daniel says, And I, as I looked, thrones were placed. Now this is hundreds of years before 
this takes place. Thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were open. So in Scripture, whenever books are open, that signals judgment. Because in the books are written what everybody has done. So now, we're, 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 we see the Ancient of Days here. It'll be, it's God sitting on his throne, and one is going to come to him, and that one is going to judge the, the world. And we, Daniel picks it up in verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, meaning it looked like a man. That's Jesus. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, this is to Jesus, and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. See what Jesus is saying about himself? Not only I will judge you, but I've got a kingdom that is going to go on forever and cannot be destroyed. I have all dominion. Now, in defense of the Jewish authorities, Jesus didn't look like much standing there. He didn't look like the son of the blessed. He didn't look like he was destined to come down in the clouds of heaven. He stood before them and seemed delusional. Jesus of Nazareth did not seem like the one who shared equal authority with the ancient of days. He had no position. He had no political clout. He had no power. He had no throne. He had no army. He had no glory. He had no crown. Any follower he had scattered. He's standing there alone, all by himself in this courtroom, and he's saying, you wait, you watch, I'm coming in the clouds. Of course they're going to say, who is this guy? He doesn't appear like much. Let's get rid of him. Jesus is saying, I'm the one who has been given who will be given dominion and a kingdom, and all the earth is going to serve me. I'm the one setting up a kingdom that cannot be destroyed. I'm the one like a son of man come from Daniel. But in that moment, he did not seem powerful or authoritative. But we know one day he will come with the clouds, with the Ancient of Days. He didn't seem like much with his hands in shackles. But one day, all peoples from everywhere would come, will come and serve him. He didn't seem impressive standing alone on that trial, but one day he would come and have a kingdom without end. He didn't seem very mighty, captured, and constrained, but one day he would begin an everlasting dominion. He, didn't seem, he seemed very ordinary, just like a criminal, but one day he would come arrayed in glory. Jesus, there's more to Jesus than he then appears here in this courtroom. That's typical. That's typical. Jesus, in his first coming, did not seem glorious. He did not seem impressive. He said things about himself here that seem outrageous. And it's no wonder, it's no wonder that the Jewish authorities acted the way they they did. Now, they should have been the ones who recognized 
Jesus for who he was, but they missed him because he was threatening their power base. They missed it. So how does this connect us? What does it matter? Why does it matter that this is happening in this courtroom in Jerusalem nearly 2,000 years ago? Why does this matter? Here's what matters. He is the great judge, Jesus, is the great judge that will judge all men and all women from all time. And here, he allows himself to be judged. More than that, he is the sinless judge who is sinfully judged and is being sinfully judged by sinful men. Why? Because that's part of the purchase price of grace. Jesus was judged at the hands of sinful men for the price of grace. Not only that, but the Ancient of Days. What we don't see in Psalm 110 or in Daniel chapter 7 is that the Ancient of Days, God the Father, was going to pour out His wrath upon Jesus later that day. He was going to pour out His wrath upon Jesus. He was going to judge Jesus. He was going to look upon Jesus as if He was the worst sinner that ever lived. All the sins for all, of all His followers was going to be put upon Him. And He was going to be judged. And His judgment, God's judgment, would be guilty. And it will be a capital crime. And He will... He will die. He will be treated as a great sinner and die not just a grisly death, but die a death that is, is far more horrific than we can understand because he experienced the wrath, the undiluted wrath of God. We see Jesus in the courtroom and we see the price of grace. The price of grace is the life of Jesus. It wasn't just that he died in our place so that we might live forever. That's true. But see the price of grace here. What's been purchased for us, what's been purchased for any who follow Jesus, is life and peace and hope instead of what we deserve. No wonder we sing the song Amazing Grace. No wonder Newton wrote that. It is amazing. It's amazing, not just that we would receive favor from God, but it's amazing that Jesus would receive the disfavor of God. That's the dark side, if you want to say it, the, the, the backside of grace. We don't think about that much. We don't, we don't consider why it's amazing. It's not just amazing because we don't deserve it. It's amazing because Jesus was treated the way he was. Jesus was treated like he was a sinner. That, that boggles my mind. It boggles my mind enough that God would look upon me and recognize that though I fall short in all kinds of different ways, it boggles my mind that he would extend grace to me and allow me to be saved. But what boggles my mind even more is that God the Father poured out upon his Son the wrath of God. Why? For grace. So that I can have grace for free. So that I might be able to come to the Father not based on my works, not based on anything I could do or have done, not based on anything good. I can come to Him based on His Son and His Son's activity because His Son purchased for me a salvation that is by grace. And the way His Son purchased that salvation 
here in this crowded hour, is allowing himself to be judged by sinful men. See, him al- he's standing there allowing himself to be arrested. That's grace, part of the purchase price of grace. He's, he's putting up with an illegal trial. That's part of the purchase price of grace. He's standing absorbing false accusations. Again, part of the purchase price of grace. He's accused of blasphemy. Actually, the chief priest is the one guilty of blasphemy because he doesn't see who's standing before him. It's God the Son. He's the one guilty of blasphemy for not recognizing God the Son. But it's grace. And then Jesus gets spat upon and he gets mocked. And he gets hit in the face, and he's received with blows. Grace. Grace. Notice the purchase price of grace. See, the danger for those of us who have been coming to church for years, or know Jesus, or have been following him for decades, is that grace becomes a cliche and not very amazing. It doesn't become amazing. It's not amazing because we think about grace only with respect to ourselves. We think about grace in terms of what we get. But we don't think about how grace has been extended. Jesus died so that we might experience grace. You see, if we only consider our side of the equation... Grace isn't going to seem so amazing because over time, as Christians, as we live lives that are maybe definitely better than we were when we were not saved, we're going to slowly think that, that, you know, there's a sense in which we deserve the blessing and the favor and what we received from the Lord. There's a great danger for those of us who've grown up. Grace ceases to be amazing because in some part of our lives and in some part of the secret parts of our hearts, We think, oh, we deserve this favor and attention from God. We had our devotions. We go to church. We go to small group. We pray on a regular basis. We read our Bible. We sing during worship. We give. We go on mission trips. We help the needy. And then subtly, slowly, even imperceptibly, we think we've earned something. We never admit it, but grace isn't so amazing. But what we need to recognize is that there is a disobedience in obedience. There is a disobedience in obedience. Our best efforts, our best efforts fall short. We have to be forgiven, not just of the bad things that we've done, but we have to be forgiven of the good things we've done as well. None of us are worthy of grace. Even our best deeds cry out, help! In need of grace. And here we see Jesus making that possible. He's standing before Sinful men paying the price for me. I deserve to be standing before a tribunal, not just, a, not just a court here on earth, but I deserve to be standing before a tribunal. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all testifying against me for my many sins, not just of what I've done, but what I've thought and what I've said. Things I did do and didn't do. Even the good works I've done, I need to be forgiven for. But I will not stand in, I will not, I will not have to stand facing judgment because Jesus stood here in his crowded hour and purchased grace 
for me and for you. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, you can be, and you can come to him and recognize you can't perform, you don't need to perform because Jesus did. Christianity is all about a person, and his name is Jesus. We focus on him because he purchased favor from God for us because we could not. Jesus, Jesus has purchased for us grace. We've been with Jesus in these two trials here, in his tortuous, crowded hour. We've seen him stand in our place. We've seen him take the scorn and the beating and the mocking. But remember, Peter is there as well. He's out in the courtyard. Remember, it wasn't just a a couple hours earlier that Peter had loudly crowed about his allegiance to Jesus, expressing his willingness even to go with Jesus to his own death. He says, if everybody, if all these guys fall away, I'll go with you to, the, to, I'll go with you to die. But yet, when, Jesus came, when, the, when Judas came to arrest, with, with the crowd to arrest Jesus, Peter and everyone else ran. Now, Peter is in the vicinity, kind of at a safe distance, and we see a third trial. We see trial number three, Peter before the servant girl. I'm going to read beginning in Mark 14:54, and then skip down to verse 66. So follow along as I read. Verse 54. And Peter had followed him, that's Jesus, at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Verse 66. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. Verse 71, but he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately, the rooster crowed a second time. Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Peter's put on trial not by the Jewish authorities, but by a servant girl. And as people huddled around the fire to ward off the early spring chill, she accuses him, in the light of the fire, of being an associate with Jesus. You also were with that Nazarene Jesus. Peter says, I don't understand or even know what you're talking about. Um, and, but he does move away from the fire. He goes to sort of the edge of the, goes to the gateway of the courtyard. And the servant girl had to be thinking, okay, well, maybe I'm wrong. But her mind kept going back and thinking back, and she knew that she was right. And so she tries to rally help. And so she enlists 
the bystanders to be a jury in her trial in verse 69. Servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders. So first she says to Peter, you're a Nazarene. You got to be with him. Then she says, hey, this man is one of them. But again, he denied it. Now the growing crowd of people, they're all deputized to cross-examine Peter. They're trying to decide if they remember if he was with Jesus the Galilean. The bystanders probably mumbled amongst themselves and agreed, yeah, we saw him. And now it's their turn to ask a question. After a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly you are one of them. You are a Galilean. The way they could tell he was a Galilean, which is in the north, they're in Jerusalem in the south, in the north, they have accents. They have a different accent than the south. Just like when we hear someone talk from England, we think, you're not from here, are you? It's the same thing here when, when he spoke, they, when Peter speaks, he speaks like a Galilean. And here's how Peter responds. He began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. Notice Peter doesn't say, I don't know him. He invokes a curse upon himself. Essentially, he says something like, may God make me burn in hell forever if I am lying and know this man that you're talking about. He curses himself. Ironically, just as it was ironic that the chief priest was guilty of blasphemy in accusing Jesus, Peter, having denied Jesus three times, expresses with his own mouth what he deserves, curses. He calls curses down upon himself that are richly deserved. And remember, he is going to become the chief apostle. He's going to be the spokesperson of the early church. And here we see this man cursing himself to prove to an anonymous slave girl and some people that we don't know in a courtyard that he doesn't know Jesus. And that's what he deserves. But little did he know or understand that in the room just above him, Jesus was purchasing grace for Peter. Jesus was accepting the curse of the Jewish authorities and would ultimately accept the curse of God for failures like Peter. It's obvious that Peter failed. We can see that. But notice, Peter failed even according to his own standards. See, he failed according to God's standards. I mean, spectacularly, right? But think about this. Think about how Peter, his failure was even, he couldn't even live up to what he said he was going to do. He said, I'll never leave you. And he left them. He said, I'll die before I leave you but he ran. He says, I'll never deny Jesus, but he did three times. The one who said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, says to this servant girl and this courtyard, if I know him, may I burn in hell. He doesn't live up to his own standards. And that's why grace is amazing. Neither do we. Neither do we. Have you ever made a mistake, done something you know is wrong. 
and you quickly go, well, I'm never going to do that again, or say that again, or drive there again, or be there again, or drink that again, or smoke that again, or eat that again, or think that way again, or want that again, but yet again and again and again, you go back. You break your own word. We fail even the standards we set up for ourselves, much less the standards of God. Grace ensures that our failure, grace from Jesus ensures that our failure is not permanent. See Jesus, he's standing here. Peter is not wrong. Peter is not wrong. He does deserve to be cursed. But Jesus is busy putting a down payment on grace. Same for you. Jesus was accused so that we can go free. Jesus accepted the scorn so that we might receive grace. All of us in time will face a crowded hour, our own crowded hours. And there'll be ways that we'll fail. There'll be ways that we fall short. There'll be ways that we sin. But because of what Jesus did here in this place and because of what he would do later on Friday, we've received grace. We've received something from him that we could have never earned. We fall short of his standards. We fall short of our own standards. May that sober us as Christians. May we not get used to the fact. May we not get used to the fact that we have grace from God. May we not get used to that. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, here's what you need to understand about Christianity. It's not a principle. It's not a list of teaching or rules. Christianity is this. We trust a man who has died. And we ask that any punishment that would be due to us, we say, put it on him. Because that's, what he, that's why he came. And so salvation comes for people who believe that he died and rose again for their sins. And that he extends grace. Grace is for anyone who will just reach out their hand. Praise God in heaven that Jesus responded to his crowded hour like this. Let's pray. Dear God, I, I know what I deserve, and I know what I get. Two different things. And Lord, I pray for all of us in this room, Lord Jesus. I, I pray for Christians in this room, Lord. We are so quick, so, so forgetful, really. We forget what we have in Jesus. We forget what you've purchased for us. We forget that the very cost of your life has been what has secured for us grace. Oh, and Lord, we, we forget that, and that's to our shame. Lord, may we not. May we revel in the fact that our God 
treated Jesus as if he committed all our sins so that we might receive grace. Lord, may we not get used to that. May we, may we not just sing about it or, or, or make signs about grace, but may that be something that functions for us at a very deep level, Lord, so that when we fail, when we fall short of both God's standards and our standards, we can lean not in the fact that, oh, I'll do better next time, but that Christ has extended to us grace. Pray for any in this room who are contemplating walking away from Jesus. Because it's hard or maybe because there's been hardships or trials in their lives that are just difficult. But I pray that you would help them to see what they have in Jesus and the grace extended from him at the cost of his life. He endured more than we can imagine so that we can receive his favor. I pray also for anybody in this room who's, who isn't following you or doesn't know you. Lord, I pray that you would introduce yourself to them in a powerful way through your word. I pray that they would be able to talk to one of their friends that knows Jesus and learn about you. I pray for all of us, Lord, that we would be a people and a place that doesn't get tired of expressing how grateful we are for your grace in our lives. It's in your name, Jesus. You who sit at the right hand of power. You who will one day come with the Ancient of Days in the clouds. It's in your name we pray. Amen.